Academy Award nominee for Best Visual Effects, Godzilla Minus One is an epic, entertaining blockbuster with a tender love story at its core, says the Washington Post. Winner of eight International Best Visual Effects Awards and nominated for 12 Japan Academy Film Prizes, Godzilla Minus One is the third highest grossing foreign language film in the United States of all time. Certified fresh at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, Forbes says Godzilla Minus One is one of 2023's greatest films. Academy Award nominee, Best Visual Effects, Godzilla Minus One from Toho International. Welcome back to the Outside Scoop, the box office podcast, episode three, or one or two away from actually making an episode that's pretty good. We'll be ready just in time for Dune. I'm Scott Mendelson. I am a contributor to Puck News, and I run the Outside Scoop. I'm Ryan Scott. You might know me from my writings on Slash Film or Fangoria.com. Hi, my name is Lisa Lehman. Pronouns are she, her. I write for Collider, Looper, Fangoria, Scarletine couple of other places. I'm Jeremy Fooster. I am the box office and labor reporter for The Rack. For the first time since we started this, we have competition. Bob Marley, One Love, earned an estimated $51 million over its long Wednesday to Monday debut. Musical biopics were still as bankable as they were in the pre-COVID days. Coming in at number two, Madam Webb, projected to earn around 25 and change over its long Wednesday to Monday, President's Day weekend, with lousy reviews, a poor cinema score, and nothing going for this film in terms of commercial viability other than the memes. That's 20 bucks right there. This one is going to be put out to pasture pretty quickly as yet another misfire in the Sony's Spider-Man universe. I think that's what's called this week. Here is the 20,000-foot view with President's Day weekend where the industry estimates from Friday to Monday are around $90 million. Can anyone here name the last year, for equation adjustment, obviously, the last year when President's Day weekend had an overall total of less than $100 million? 96. Wow. It, it, it is that bad. And that is the end result of there being very little in terms of holdovers. The third place movie was Argyle, very distant third with 5.5 million in over four days. There's literally nothing else. Last year, there was literally nothing else, but Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania made $120 million over four days before going off a cliff the very next weekend. But at least it had that big opening. Bob Marley, as amazing as it is, can't deadlift the entire box office on its own. But with Bob Marley, I, I think it is a testament to how you take a biopic, big enough star, it can be any time period, but he's got a big enough fan base and you put them in the right slot, it can surprise people. Bob Marley, more than 40 years after his death from skin cancer, is still a draw, still a legend. A quarter of the film's audience so far is from the under 25 crowd so that kind of shows how paramount is once again similar to what they did with mean girls and scream finding something that would on its face appeal to audiences older than gen z but then get gen z to buy in paramount is doing something right in terms of creating awareness and interest in 
quote unquote, normal movie slash non-franchise pictures. This makes me very optimistic, maybe too much so, for their John Kaczynski-directed Ryan Reynolds starring If, which opens on May 18th, which is, I think, by default, the year's biggest wholly original theatrical release in terms of budget and expectations. In the pre-COVID days, I was never terribly concerned with overall box office. I frowned upon that kind of, oh no, the overall box office is a little bit lower than this same weekend in 2013 or whatever. If you want smaller movies and you don't want nothing but tentpoles every week, then you're going to have some weekends that are smaller. And for me, it was always, how does the individual movie do in relation to budget and expectations and what have you? But Jeremy's right. Now that theaters are not being properly served on a regular basis, unfortunately, the macro picture is more important than ever. And to that end, Paramount, not only did they have Bob Marley overperform this weekend and not just looking at the domestic picture, movie did 29 million overseas. So it's just a hair shy of 75 mil. That's pretty damn good. And on the same weekend that Mean Girls crossed 100 million worldwide. And that was another movie that was supposed to go direct to Paramount Plus. They're leading the charge as far as this, screw this direct-to-streaming stuff. They are doing something right. And I yeah. know that Mean Girls move was more of a, there's nothing there. Let's go ahead and give it a shot. We cannot overemphasize enough the importance of this film being the rare 2024 wide release so far with a primarily black cast. This is something that Hollywood keeps forgetting. When you make stuff for marginalized communities, this isn't a tentpole film, but it also does provide promised spectacle in the advertising. They were advertising on Mission Impossible, like it's supposed to be a quasi-bigger film. Like, that isn't something that comes along every day with largely Black casts. For audiences that don't get new movies with people that look like them every weekend, that's going to be a bit more of an event. That whole stuff about films with Black leads now playing internationally, bogus. It's been false for decades. We need that to get a thriving box office back. We can't just make stuff for the same demographic. It cost 70, while Madame Webb allegedly cost 80. Maybe it is the 10 pull this weekend. Regardless of what demographic you're targeting, there does have to be a sense of this movie is going to be fun and escapist and it's not necessarily going to be wallowing in misery. When you take a film that's aimed at an underrepresented demographic and you make it a proverbial event, that's how Universal started kicking ass in 2015 and onward. They had stuff like Trainwreck and Stranded Compton, which, by the way, is also one of the biggest musical biopics of all time. When you give an underrepresented demographic a little bit of a flame and yawn, they show up for seconds. A lot of times when you have a film that releases midweek, the audience that would have gone to the theaters Friday through Saturday just ends up getting stretched out across Wednesday and Thursday as well. We're not really seeing... We don't usually see signs that the midweek is growing the audience. Every once in a while, that does end up being the case. It was a case here with Bob Marley. It wasn't supposed to originally come out on Valentine's Day. It was upset for the MLK weekend. And then in September, whether because of the strike or they had thoughts on another strategy, they moved Mean Girls into MLK weekend and then moved Bob Marley over to uh, Valentine's Day. and. That move ended up paying off. Mean Girls, as as Ryan pointed out, $100 million. It gets a $36 million budget for a straight-to-streaming movie. Pretty solid. And now with Bob Marley, we had a $14 million on Valentine's Day. The midweek release ended up allowing the film to build a lot of momentum because it didn't make that much money on Thursday. But I think... A lot of the hardcore Bob Marley fans showed up en masse on Wednesday, along with 
the date night Valentine's Day crowd, those two combine to build up a lot of audience buzz, help the film overcome its mixed reviews, and then head into the weekend with a lot more buzz than it might have had it gone in with a traditional Thursday night preview Friday release. So hopefully this film will be able to keep that momentum and get more people who may not be that into Bob Marley to give it a shot. Critics were not super into this movie. It's not like it was getting amazing reviews while Madam Web is getting trashed, but this was a movie that maybe critics were just tired of. My sense is that it's a pretty paint-by-numbers biopic. It's a little simple, but that equates to crowd-pleasing a lot of the time. That Wednesday crowd was, hey, this is good. It got people out Friday, Saturday. And I think that that's super important because you want to go back when you talk about the Sony Spider-Man verse in a second. That's what happened with Venom. Critics don't like that movie, but people were like, yo, Tom Hardy's fun. Originally, when it was supposed to open over MLK Weekend, I presumed that this was going to get a two-day Oscar qualifying run at the end of the year, like A Man Called Otto or Hidden Figures. Because if it's a big biopic thing with big stars and it's opening the first two weeks of January, you drop it over Christmas or New Year's weekend, limitedly, so you can qualify for the Oscars. Delaying it to February turned out to be a Monuments Men level inspired move. Maybe Paramount saw a screening and went, if we put this at the AFI Fest, it's going to just have two months of negative reviews lingering over it. But we push it to February and just make it a mainstream movie. We just push it as crowd pleaser tentpole thing. Then it works. That really was a shrewd release move to sacrifice the Oscar campaign to be a mainstream player. My guess is it was also as much Mean Girls as it was... Bob Marley, because Bean Girls was a pivot. The studios didn't know how much longer the SAG after SAG was going to go. If they were going for a film circuit thing, you don't have Kingsley Benadir out there promoting a film with Shauna Lynch. In the end, it just ended up really paying off. Moving the film from MLK weekend to Valentine's Day weekend was a way to make it seem less of an important film and more of a fun movie. They were able to sell it as a, a date move in a way that wouldn't have been easy to pull opening on MLK Weekend. While Mean Girls, no one's going to associate that with MLK Weekend for one reason or another. So that can just be sold as it is. It's weird that this and Anything But You, which are two movies that no one would ever put in the same box, have brought back Hollywood to being, whoa, date night. I think in the mid-2010s, there was such an emphasis on these all-quadrant pictures that everyone would go to see. Civil War, which is basically Tom Clancy and tights. So you get the kids and you get the dads and you get women are fine with it because it's a solid action movie. And that was why, among other reasons, the, the mid-2010s were such a tired time for studio programmers because these pictures were one size fits all, especially when you have audiences that only go to the movies maybe once a month. I don't want to be too optimistic and say, oh, the marketplace is diversifying in terms of more people spending more of their money on a larger selection of movies. But we may have something closer to 2011. 17% of the overall domestic box office was spent on the top six grossing movies. By 2018, that number was up to 26%. And by 2019, because of Disney domination, it was 40%. Last year, Probably thanks to Taylor Swift, Five Nights at Freddy, and Sound of Freedom, it was down to 30%. There might be a slight situation where you are seeing a slightly larger percentage of movies in the marketplace accounting for the overall spend. We haven't really talked much about Madam Web yet, but there was a time where this movie would have made a certain amount of money just because it had the Marvel name in it. That time is gone. Sony, Disney... Warner Brothers, they're going to have to start rethinking this stuff. 
and they can't just let everything ride on the the three superhero movies they have coming out that year. In Sony's case, we haven't heard a real honest lick about Spider-Man 4. So you're going to have to start investing in more anyone but you type stuff. They might have to start trying to emulate this middle of the road music biopic success. Whatever's working, they're going to try to emulate it. You might actually have to spread the love. You make one less $200 million movie a year, but the, you, you maybe invest that in three or four different. And if a few of those things hit in each case from each studio, then you actually might have a situation where things start to improve. This is the first weekend in a minute where I'm okay. There's a, a Russell Crowe actioner nobody heard about until three days ago that's in the top 10. You got your music biopic, you got your superhero movie, you got your faith-based The Chosen. I know it's the lowest overall President's Day gross in a while, but there is stuff there to be optimistic about. Sony has already been really invested in that. We're starting to notice it because anyone but you really broke out. They've always got a a mid-budget action from like a bullet train somewhere in their slate. They've got the PlayStation stuff, and then they've got stuff like Where the Crawdads Sing. It was female-driven, produced by Reese Witherspoon. They did pretty well. They're also incentivized to do that because of the deal they have with Netflix. Netflix, I can see Netflix kind of turning more to Sony to produce the sort of mid-budget standard drama fare for their streaming service after first being in theaters that Netflix would produce themselves and pull back. I do have some thoughts on that, but I'll wait till we're talking about Madame Web a bit more. But yeah, that one opened with like 25.5 million. Adjusted for inflation, we're talking mid-2000s Puttershire Electra type numbers. Bad reviews, bad buzz, no real stars. Or, I mean, there's a case I think Sydney Sweeney's becoming that. Well, I, I will say, in fairness, I think Sydney Sweeney's becoming famous, that. But I do think a part of the new normal is that a film like Anyone But You or Daisy Edgar Jones's Where the Crawdads Sing is more valuable in terms of building cheap scores and awareness and stardom than being a co-star in something like Madam Web or Ghostbusters, The Frozen Empire with Celeste O'Connor or Twisters, which is coming out this summer with both Glenn Powell and Daisy Edgar Jones and Anthony Ramos. But as for this film, Ryan, you're right. And that it really stinks that the superhero industrial complex, and I would say specifically the MCU, because they've been doing this for longer, waited to truly diversify their lineup until the cycle was just about to burst. I do believe it had come out in mid-2010s that Blue Beetle would have at least been a mid-size hit, if not a big hit, because it's a good movie. I think the big takeaway from this is that Venom is the exception to the rule. There never really was an interest in these no Spider-Man Spider-Man movies that Sony had been threatening to make for most of the 2010s. They got so lucky with Venom that we all thought maybe there is an audience for this after all. And then Morbius came out and was terrible and tanked. And then Madame Webb came out and was terrible and tanked. And maybe Craven is a new masterpiece, or at least I don't know about masterpiece. I, I, well, I, I think JC Chandor and the fact that it's rated R, I do think there's a chance movie has something. I think Aaron Taylor Johnson's a bit of a bigger star than he maybe gets credit for being. I really don't like Venom, but audiences really like Venom. I think there is a difference between good movies and bad movies. And I think by and large, people have considered these Sony Spider-Man spinoffs to be bad movies. If Sony made a very good Black Cat movie for $80 million, could that make money? Maybe. I think we're past the point Blue Beetle was a good movie. The joke I made about that movie is that it was the best superhero movie of 2011. 
we're at a point now where the bigger problem for the superhero universe is that new stuff can't catch on. Blue Beetle, a good movie, can't catch on. You're going to run out of stuff people are familiar with. Captain America 4, you've got a new Captain America. I don't know where the new superheroes are coming from. Barring a full-on reboot, which I think might be coming. That's a whole other discussion. The other problem with Madam Web is we're going to see studio executives, you mark my words, Zaslov, saying things in the coming weeks like, this proves that women-led superhero movies can't do well. This in the Marvels. They'll say that. This isn't about women superheroes can't do well. It's the fact that you guys waited six years and now Madam Web just slapping three women and one non-binary person on a poster uh, is not inherently a bad thing, obviously, because uh, I'm not a troglodyte that lives online. We now have mainstream art that has now provided a new blueprint for what female-friendly mainstream cinema looks like. Barbie. In 2019, Captain Marvel felt special. It felt like a unique moment because that was still a rare thing to see a female-led movie that cost over 150 mil. But we're in 2024 now, and while that's not like we've solved sexism we have not like our ideas of what female-led mainstream entertainment have evolved and the super and something like madam web just feels the three five five two years ago feels like it was made from a different era in the wrong way it does doesn't appeal to people's tastes right now it's just out of step with everything that's the problem not the fact that it stars people that identify as marginalized genders What's funny is that no one could say a Madam Web shows that female-driven superhero movies don't work, and the perfect response would be, there's no female superheroes in Madam Web. Spoilers, they never put on the yes. costumes. I've been complaining for no. a decade about movies that are glorified, feature-length prologues to the movie that you actually came to see. This one's new. This one's a prequel to the prequel to the movie you theoretically came to see. Because this is all about Madame Webb's origin story. Theoretically, the next movie will be about how these three young ladies got their superpowers and decided to be ass-kicking spider people. And then maybe in a theoretical third movie, you'd get them swinging around looking good and kicking ass. I don't know if a conventional Spider-Woman slash Spider-Girl movie with these three actresses in costume for most of the film, doing the superhero thing and looking good while doing it, would have performed better than this. But it sure as hell couldn't perform much worse. I'll tell you right now, if you put these four leads in their superhero outfits and you made the tone like a homage to Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, the Lizzie McGuire movie and all those early 2000s femme movies, this thing makes a billion. I'm not even joking. It would have been like the Super 8 for women that had read Twilight in high school, that would have actually fulfilled a vacancy in the marketplace. You get, you could have got made a soundtrack for the ages. You could have gotten Hillary Duff and the Josie and the Pussycats from the 2003 movie. You could have gotten them all. It could have actually been fun. Sony wants to keep proving to everyone that the amazing Spider-Man wasn't a boondoggle. So they keep doing realistic, no-color superhero movies that just tease sequels. They missed out, but there was a world where Madam Web was more Debs than the 355, and that's when it makes money. That actually... Yeah, a Spider-Woman movie is viable, but to Scott's point, you gotta have it be a superhero movie. It's gotta do the thing you're promising to do. It's weird to have that cast and that that movie and that pitch. You get eight seconds of people in a costume. What is it? What the hell movie do you have? And I just don't know what you're selling to people. And I think I said this last time we were on, but I hope... If this gets pinned on S.J. Clarkson, 
We riot. Krasinski got to make a quiet place after the Hollers. As Jake Clarkson should be allowed to make something after Madam Web. Madam Web is still marginally better than the Hollers. And a quiet place uh, started a franchise for Paramount. So yeah. You know what the weird irony of this is? Sony's Spider-Man franchise, both Holland and the animated Spider-Verse, are the biggest and best superhero franchises in Hollywood. And Sony's got them. They don't need this garbage. Okay, but here's the thing with that. To my, all right, so Sony was real good for, they get the Tom Holland deal, Spider-Man movie 2017, Spider-Man, or no, what was it? They had Spider-Man movie every two years. They should at least be filming Spider-Man 4 right now. And that's not happening. Sony sees is, at best, we get a Spider-Man movie every two years. And that's if you just have that thing running like a machine. You can maybe squeeze an animated one in between it. What they're seeing is like, we want one every year, if not two every year. And that's just the way the corporate thinking goes. They don't need this crap. But if you could put out a good Spider-Woman movie, it is conceivable that with some of these Spider-Man characters, you could make good movies. The thing I'm still baffled about is why after the success of No Way Home, why didn't you try to go to Toby and be like, you want to do another one? Because I feel if you had gotten that out two years later, that would have made a lot of money. And I'm not even trying to be funny. And I'm not just trying to feed fanboy stuff. You opened up the multiverse. You made that possible. I don't know what's going on with the main Spider-Man franchise, and, and I don't think they're getting Tom Holland for three more movies. The reason we haven't seen another uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man is um, because John Watts finally broke out of whatever Sony prison they were holding him in for <laughs> seven years. And he was like, I'm free! Oh, Lord have mercy, I'm free! And then he was just called Clooney and Pitt to be let's do something real quick before they notice. You mean Ooh. Sony lost the irreplaceable auteur known as John Watts and now they can't make any more Spider-Man movies? The man who brought us Clown and Cop Car. <laughs> hey, I liked Cop Car. I liked Duffer I, too, but... It... He's a very good invisible director. And there are lots mm -hmm. of very good oh, yeah, no. directors. Basically, everyone that's on my wish list for Jurassic World 4 is a very good I would like to talk a lot with you about that offline, sir. <laughs> J.D. Dillard's my number one um, pick, but we'll see. Ooh. Um, like yeah. I'm the only person that does this for a living that is actually genuinely excited about Jurassic World 4, where I'm like, I'm choosing optimism. Anyway, I, I oh, have my gosh. doubts that it makes that release date. Considering that was the first mo mo big movie to shoot in the middle of COVID, I was astonished at how it actually looked like a movie that wasn't shot during COVID and that it was a $185 million movie that looked like a huge IMAX-friendly blockbuster. When Spider-Man No Way Home was shot in Foggy's apartment and looked like it was shot in Foggy's apartment, Madam Web is a very predictable flop because it represents basically everything that Hollywood learned incorrectly from the success of The Avengers. It offers a cinematic universe in the abstract. It offers a superhero film in the abstract. It offers superheroes who aren't really marquee characters in the abstract. And that doesn't even work for Netflix, let alone a major movie studio. Jupiter's Gold was one and done. I'm sorry, Jupiter's Legacy was one and done. <laughs> Jupiter's Gold is my favorite Fool, Fool's Gold sequel. <laughs> Does it tie in with McConaughey's other gold movie? Yeah, that's all in the same universe, baby. There's a movie... That obviously is not a franchise film, but it makes the classic franchise mistake of being an entire feature-length prequel for the movie that you want to see. Because, like, in the last 10 minutes, you find out he's a fraud. Like, I want to see that movie. That sounds interesting. Taste of Things did expand into 520 theaters, and it did pretty well. It actually made 600 grand over the weekend. It's now made 1.1 million domestically. I was looking at IFC's history, and if it can just not collapse after this weekend... 
and surpassed BlackBerry's 2.4 million haul last year. This will be the second biggest IFC films release in eight years since The Man Who Spelled Infinity in April 2016. Only The Death of Stalin did better. Kudos to the taste of things for not, I, which I was a little more mixed on than most people, but kudos to it for being a French language film with no huge stars and no Oscar nominations, doing pretty well from a studio that doesn't normally launch art house hits, but doing pretty good. So one day I got to talk to someone at IFC about how their business model works because hearing those numbers fascinates me. God bless them. I love so many of their movies, but it's, I don't, where does their money come from? I have no idea, but uh, good for that. Also, please, God, for the love of God, go watch Blackberry. I'm tired of telling people to go see Blackberry, <laughs> but uh, the movie. Uh, uh, I've heard, you? I've heard. I don't want to talk about that, but I've heard nothing but phenomenal things about the taste of things. Good for them. God bless them for somehow making money. At a downtown Alamo draft house in about a week, they're going to have a screening of the taste of things for $130 per ticket. And you get a four course French dinner with wine. Whoa. Sinopolis does that semi-regularly. Which is the more elaborate uh, $100? Plus dollar ticket. That or the aggro drift screenings in the strip clubs. I admit Whoa, I was tempted just because I've never been to a strip club and I figure I could cross off my list and for a work-related function. God bless the Alamo Draft House, man. That's a bold move. I bet they'll sell some tickets. Good for yeah. them. Uh, Sinopolis, cool. which is a, a dinner theater also, they occasionally do something that's called movie and a meal. They have a movie and they have a fixed menu. And it's probably about 75 bucks a pop. I've only done it once or twice because it's 75 bucks a pop. But for this one, okay, everybody sign up for the outside scoop in the next week so I can take my wife to the taste of things at the Alamo. That'll be, it's um, like a Patreon exclusive thing. Uh, actually, that's not a terrible idea. Uh, completely unrelated to anything else, we should probably also mention that Wonka crossed 600 million this weekend. So. Yes. Timothy another... Chalamet is about to be in two consecutive movies that make over $600 million worldwide. Good for him. I mean, I think at the beginning of the year, I don't think any of us thought, oh, yeah, Walker's going to do more than the Marvels or do more than Aquaman or Indiana Jones. Give me Indiana Jones. I was always pretty bearish on that. But it's a very optimistic hit. It's a franchise film that's mostly a one and done picture. Could there be a sequel? Sure. But there doesn't have to be. And I think that sensibility, like Barbie, makes it a more crowd-pleasing picture. You don't feel, feel like you're being strung along for a glorified trailer. Never bet against James Cameron. Never bet against Paul King. Paul King's on the verge of getting a blank check movie, right? Paul King's got to be getting close to, if he's got some dream picture in his back pocket, I think he's pretty close to getting that green lid. In other non-box office news, Disney slash Marvel finally announced their cast for Fantastic Four as well as moving the film from its initial May 2nd, 2025 release date to, I believe, July 20th, swapping places with Thunderbolts. Meanwhile, Blade is nowhere to be found. Ivan Moss Bachrock, I don't know how to say his name. I'm so sorry. He's the guy from The Bear. He's playing Ben Grimm, and you have Joseph Quinn, who everyone knows from Stranger Things. He's going to be our Johnny Storm. Pedro is obviously playing Reed Richards, and you have Miss Venice Kirby as Sue Storm. As of right now, Matt Shackman's still directing. The little poster they released all but confirmed it is a 1960s set movie. Peyton Reed's got to be pissed they took his idea and didn't let him direct it. After, I don't know, what did he pitch that movie 20 years ago? Ryan, Um, I think you forgot an important piece from that art, which is that Herbie is going to be in this. (laughs) Which actually makes me very happy. I love that little Herbie's in here. I love dumb robots. 
My favorite little touch from that poster was how the Marvel Studios logo was remade to look like the Cinerama logo. That was a very neat little touch. I, I would expect from a Matt Shackman directed project. Probably this idea of sitting with a 60s vibe probably came early enough and they just said, hey, let's give the WandaVision guy because he just nailed six different periods in WandaVision. We've talked about how sometimes the creative energies of the director's Marvel Studios hires don't mesh with the MCU system, but Shackman has proven that he can make that work in a way that James Gunn can, the way that Brian Krugler can. That lends itself to a lot of obvious. And plus, Ebon is a thing just instantly sold me as somebody who loves the bear, pretty much pitch perfect cast. The whole cast feels pretty good to me. I'm not super invested in the Fantastic Four. I get the rumor that's swirling around right now is that Galactus is the villain of the first one and that Doctor Doom won't really be in it. That helps them out if they want to make Doctor Doom a bigger villain going forward in the current timeline. Continuity is the big enemy of the MCU right now. As someone who was pretty uninterested in this and felt a little pessimistic about it with everything that's been going on, I like that little logo. I like the 60s look and I like that it's like, the Fantastic Four. There's something very 60s about that. Not that it's not just it's not just Fantastic Four. It's the Fantastic Four. I think Thunderbolts getting moved up. I don't know that movie actually makes that date. Uh, that that's the one I'm more worried about right now. Agreed. But that's another conversation. I can confirm that is exactly how the you know the Fantastic Four was how the that label was promoted on the covers in the Silver Age. My dad, when he was living in Puerto Rico, would read. La Familia Fantastica, Fantastic Four. So yeah, it, it, it's digging in even further into Silver Age. I, I really hope they, they lean in into the Silver Age vibe with this movie. I have to imagine that's the pitch. I ha It's gotta be, it's gotta be. Especially because they've, we've had three modern-ish Fantastic Four movies that maybe one of them worked and then two didn't. So this is the way to make it work. Or is it just that The Incredibles did it too well to do it elsewhere? This is the most important movie Marvel's got coming down the pike. They really haven't had any luck establishing new A-level superhero properties since Endgame, with the hopeful exception of Shang-Chi. And the only reason we haven't gotten a sequel by now is because up until recently, Destin Daniel Critton was directing Avengers 5, which we all assumed was basically going to star Shang-Chi. Captain America's dead. Iron Man's dead. Black Widow's dead. T'Challa is dead, all due respect. Clearly, the audience wasn't there for Brie Larson's Captain Marvel beyond it's the first big female-led superhero movie that also right before Avengers Endgame. In terms of A-level biggies, the only ones they've, the only new one they've had since the Avengers is that's still around is Doctor Strange. The Guardians are basically done. If they can't establish that putting the Fantastic Four into the MCU will deliver a more artistically pleasing and more commercially viable result than the first three or four, if you want to count the Corman one, Fantastic Four pictures, then the then Marvel's core pitch that they are the ideal cinematic vacation destination has been debunked. They really need to show that they can still make a movie into an A-level blockbuster event by virtue of it existing within the MCU as both audience excitement and making a movie that's so much better than the other Fantastic Four, they can say this is the Marvel difference. And I'm only half joking when I say I'm mad because it placates the internet theorists that they cast a Stranger Things white boy as Johnny Storm for five years. Is everyone being like, Joe Curie has to be Johnny. And I'm like, 
they're not going to go that route. They're not going to get this douchey lifeguard boy from the third season that was in Power Rangers. And they went and got Joseph Quinn. That should be Jarrell Jerome from I'm a Virgo. But on balance, this is a pretty good cast. I'm a huge Bear fan. And Ebon crushed season two. He had the best episode of... 2023 television. I love Pedro. Vanessa's really talented. My big concern with this is I actually think Marvel's style and comedy emphasis could work well for the Fantastic Four because they're always silly in the classic comics they are. My hope, though, is the 60s setting inspires them to take some risks visually, even just on bare stuff. Please let this be shot on film. I know Marvel hasn't done that since Thor in 2011, but please, if there was ever a movie where you gotta shoot it on film, it's the one that's set in the 60s and it's supposed to evoke a hard day's night. There was a Napoleon commercial three months ago that beckoned audiences to check it out. And so we are in a post-Oppenheimer world where more people are aware of shooting on film. So that could help make these feel a little more special again, or at least look different than the Disney Plus things. But yeah, the cast looks fine. I love that Herbie's there. I hope the Mole Man's the villain. I like the Mole Man because he's silly and round. This is probably more for DC studios than Marvel. But I do think the next handful of superhero movies might be a little bit less diverse than the previous generation, especially with DC. I don't assume Minfari's motivations. DC is going to be sold at a traditional, this is something for the fans. This is not a deconstruction. These are more conventional, wholesome, all audience pleasing superhero adventure stories. And that means the characters that you know in the comics are going to look like they do in the comics. I could be wrong. I hope I am. But that is something that has crossed my mind. The whole Joseph Quinn thing, he's probably the cheapest one in that cast. Marvel's still trying to employ that strategy when they cast him up and coming and cheap. Pedro's the guy that got paid. I think Vanessa Kirby probably got paid, but not like Pedro paid. And then on down where Lon and, and Joseph were like the, hey guys, you get to be in a superhero movie. Do we get paid? You get to be in a superhero movie. I think that's probably what that contract is. is. Yeah. And then if there's a sequel, then you get paid. That's how this stuff works. This also means that Superman Legacy has to get the hell out of Dodge. They cannot open two, a week and a half after Jurassic World 4 and two weeks before Fantastic Four. Especially if it's good. <laughs> it needs all the room it, need, it can get. Even if Marvel might you know, not be that concerned about Thunderbolts. Okay, it's a Suicide Squad movie back when... Everything Marvel touched was gold. I guess we should make this. They are going to move heaven and earth to make sure that Fantastic Four is a hit. Neither of those films can afford to take a hit, even if it's service of hurting the other one. This is not a slam on Superman Legacy. I'm assuming it's going to be good. I still think you move that one to June 6th. You give it the Spider-Verse Wonder Woman slot and you let it own June if you can. James Gunn, though, if I'm not mistaken. It's his dad's birthday. He seemed pretty set on that date. They can sell it as the movie after opening weekend on Father's Day. Everything needs breathing room. And I think that if that Jurassic World movie hits that date, people underestimate those every start. Those are crowd-pleasing movies. If it doesn't, then you move Superman July 2nd. So problem solved. Sure. Who would want to see a movie about a guy who fights for truth, justice, and the American way over 4th of July? They tried opening a Superman movie on July 4th weekend, and we got Superman Returns. I watched Clock Watchers this week with Parker Posey and Tony Collette. I was reminded of how bizarre it is that there was a Superman movie with Cal Penn and Parker Posey in 2006. And I think they both have a combined six lines. There's mm. one last observation about Bob Marley that I wanted to bring full circle on this is that probably the, the what i think theaters are really hoping for 
over the next week is really strongholds for Bob Marley. The theaters can't afford this to be a film that, for lack of a better comparison, but a movie like Color Purple, which got really strong audience reception, but never hit escape velocity, never reached a larger audience. If that ends up being the case for Bob Marley, then we're facing a situation where Yes, Dune will jolt the box office, but it's in those situations where Big Temple's deadlifting the market and the overall business is still sagging. And there needs to be a healthy top five. The best hope of the years is that we can start seeing better number three, number four numbers than the four million or five million we're seeing right now from Argyle or from Wonka. It's impressive how long Wonka has lingered in the top five. All credit to Warner Brothers for making that movie work. But the fact that it's still in the top five is more of an indictment of the rest of the market than it is about Wonka. In a healthier market, Wonka is still making those good numbers, but there is number eight or nine on the charts. Top five's got to get better. And that begins with Bob Marley holding over the next two weeks. After the 14 million opening day, we just went through the color purple. We are in firm trust but verify mode here. It really wasn't until Friday when it didn't you know, dive bomb. We were expecting you to die by him on Thursday, as you said. The hardcore show up on Wednesday. The general audience wait till Friday, unless they break the Godzilla rule, which is named after Roland Emmerich's Godzilla, which is don't open a movie on Wednesday if it's bad, because by Friday, they'll know. Don't forget that Jujutsu Kaisen, the new anime movie, opens next week. That actually might surprise a bit, which is another one of those things like maybe not quite Godzilla minus one, but the type of import that's been doing better. And so I would look to that to maybe help next weekend lift up a little bit because you get Jujutsu Kaisen maybe tops the box office. You got Bob Marley holds well, optimistically. Driveway Dolls does something. Like you could have a somewhat healthy top five next weekend, conceivably. Franchise anime films don't really have a lot of legs. It's a very small audience, but that audience shows up for one big weekend. So the theaters are going to get a a nice burst of like probably between 15 and 20 million, I wouldn't be surprised if it hits that range. That's good for a weekend. That's a good, solid single. Someone asked me, what are some, they were doing some box office draft thing for the year, and they were like, give me some underrated picks. I'm like, Ordinary Angels. One of those movies hasn't been advertised. The audience that knows about that movie is probably going to show up, and it might make $10 million. And then it might leg out. Is Cabrini tracking it all from Angel Studios? I don't think Sound of Freedom is going to, give Angel Studios the big Pixar label among evangelicals. Oh, it's Angel Studios. It must be good because their crowdfunding, their crowdfunding pattern means that films are going to be inherently different from each other. A fluke box office performer does not suddenly turn you into Marvel Studios of Christian entertainment. Uh, <laughs> 20 million domestic when I'm thinking about it overperforming. I'm not talking about Sound of Freedom, but it is the f- same director. And I would assume Angel Studios is perhaps putting some muscle behind it in a way maybe they didn't for the shift. I, I think 20 million runs with their theatrical is probably what Angel Studios is going for. If you can divulge, what is the Kung Fu Panda tracking? When I last heard about the Kung Fu Panda tracking, it was looking like it was going to be 40 million. Don't send me down on that because I haven't checked in the last few days and it could easily change. But from what I heard from Universal, they were, he- they were heavily banning on this being, you know, Pretty soft opening, but hoping that it just legs out, legs out as kids cycle in and out of their spring slash Easter break. Migration actually saw a small uptick this weekend as hitting a 10 times multiplier in domestic shows that there is a market for this. Every studio 
is trying to put their animated movies as like the sole game in town, trying to separate themselves from the competition as much as possible, the way Scott's saying they should do it with Superman Legacy and superhero movies. Like Transformers 1 is trying to get as far away from Despicable Me because they want the families who see Despicable Me wait a couple of months and say, man, we haven't seen an animated movie in a while. Oh, here's this new movie, Transformers 1. So it's the same thing with, with Universal. I think they're hoping that not having one of those movies in January and February is really going to help them leg out, even if it takes some time to get them to come in, as opposed to something like Illumination. And one thing about DreamWorks is they're incredibly consistent in terms of the legs. Even for films that weren't necessarily powered up as new classics, they have more movies that have had more than 3.5 multipliers than not. Even if it does do $40 million, I could see it lighting to under, over a, under 100, especially if it's better than the third one, which I was not crazy about. I... Part two is my favorite DreamWorks movie. That's a conversation for next time. Uh, I am Ryan Scott. If you care to find my musings uh, on box office and other things, please follow me at Ryan Scott Writes uh, on all social platforms, Twitter, Blue Sky, Tumblr, what have you. I'm everywhere. If you want to follow my writing stuff, please do so. My Collider Looper pages. And I'd also like to just give a shout out after she just headlined Bob Marley One Love to Lashana Lynch's Ear for Eye. An excellent film from last year that did not get the love it deserved. It is on the Criterion channel. Give that a watch. You won't regret it. And you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Fooster. And also you can subscribe to the Rap Pro section at therap.com. On Monday, I will be having an analysis piece on the success of Bob Marley. Talking about how Paramount really was able to get this film in the right place for success and what that means going forward for the box office in the short term and keep an eye out for some other big biopics coming ahead, like uh, Back to Black, the Amy Winehouse biopic that'll be coming out for Focus Features in May. And then next year, there's going to be a little movie called Michael you might have heard about. And if not, get three guesses to what musician that one's about. George Michael. I wish. Give it 10 years or less. You gotta have faith. Jokes aside. <laughs> to Jeremy's point, I think Antoine Fuqua's Michael Jackson biopic is going to be an absolute monster when it opens next April. Uh, and that's all we've got. Come back next week. Uh, thank you very much and take care. Take care.